0: A collection of everything, so big it can never be catalogued or appraised. The loot of the world.
1: you got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Where's the loot? I I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. Hello looters, welcome to The Movie Loot, the podcast where I talk about the loot of films I watch every month. My name is Carlo, and that's what we'll be doing today. Before we start today's episode, let's talk a bit about our latest episodes. We have episode 42, The July Loot, doing pretty well. It had a great first day of downloads. We also have episode 41, The Mindfuck Loot, where me and my guest Keram talk about weird, odd Mindfuck films. As a matter of fact, Geram got back to me via email and shared something that one of his Patreon supporters called Adam Shafto wrote to him. I finally got to listen to this the other day while doing housework, and I just have to say what a great podcast that was. It's been added to my subscriptions. So good to hear the two of you talking about one of my favorite film genres and favorite films. This has long been my favorite genre, and the two of you have really helped me find some new things to check out. Awesome stuff. Adam also shared some thoughts in some of the films we discussed, so thanks Adam, I hope you keep listening. But also thanks to everybody else that has been listening and interacting with us on social media. Anyway, let's get on with today's episode, which we're calling The Kubrick Loot. As I've been saying for the past episodes, August is my birthday month, so I wanted to treat myself to a discussion about my favorite director, Stanley Kubrick. And for this we have a great guest, film scholar and author, Nathan Abrams. Let's go! the Kubrick Loot. Hello looters, welcome to The Movie Loot. I'm joined today by a very distinguished guest, Professor of Film Studies and Film Scholar, Nathan Abrams. So glad to have you here, Nathan.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Like I said, Nathan is a professor of film studies at Bangor University in Wales. He is the lead director for the Center for Film, Television and Screen Studies, founding co-editor of Jewish Film and New Media, an international journal. And he is also the author of several books, including Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, and Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the Making of His Final Film, which he co-authored with Robert P. Colker. Is that right?
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Kubrick in a while. The reason why I chose Kubrick, like I told you in an email, he's my favorite director. And since this is my birthday month, I w- I wanted to treat myself to a discussion about my favorite director. And obviously, when I started researching who I could have on to talk about him, your name came up quite prominently. And I'm honored to have you here today. But let's start talking a bit about yourself. When did you start developing an interest in film
0: oh uh (laughs) well i watched films for as long as i can remember academically probably in my 20s when i was at university and i started to write about film more um when i was doing my phd and um watching movies and it was after my phd when i um and i was asked to teach some film by mistake actually that i leapt at the chance i actually trained in american history us history so i came to film studies uh, academically by quite a circuitous route
1: Okay, and what films did you like when you were a teenager? What were your
0: favorites? Um, I probably had zero taste. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, it's the first film I recall going to the cinema to see was um, Jason and the Argonauts, you know, the original... Okay. Uh, Harryhausen's Stop Motion, all that. And then I like movies like Delta Force and Commando, you know, Chuck Norris, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I think I grew up watching spaghetti westerns as well at home. James Bond movies, you can't grow up in Britain, especially every (laughs) Christmas without watching a Bond movie. The first Kubrick movie I remember seeing in the cinema was Full Metal Jacket, because I was old enough then, 1987. I remember sneaking in to see Poltergeist when I wasn't old enough. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show, that was a favorite Dressing Up and All So yeah, um, I don't know if that coheres into a, into a taste But that, those are the movies I remember liking
1: My next question, you already kind of answered it But did you always know you wanted to write and teach about film But you actually said that uh, it came afterwards,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely not I had no idea I'd end up doing this um, History was my thing I was good at history at school um, I read history at university my undergraduate degree. I um, studied and did American studies, but more history for my master's and PhD. So um, yeah, I just assumed I would end up being a historian following that trajectory. And in fact, I treat film as a historian. So that's my approach.
1: And looking at your work, one of your main topics of interest and research has to do with Jewishness and how it relates to the world of film and Hollywood. What draws you to this topic?
0: Well, I'm Jewish myself. Um, I don't know. I sort of am interested in that angle in history. And um, once you start, you kind of stick with what you know. So um, when I was doing my PhD, I, I, I looked at sort of Jewishness or, or Cold War Jewish intellectuals in the 40s and 50s in the United States. And I kind of stuck with the topic because I stuck with what I know. I also know that it provides an original angle. You know, in academia, we always have to try and be original for various reasons. It's not one that's studied a lot. So if I want to say something new and original in film studies, I pretty much know that that provides me with a, uh, an original angle. And it certainly did with Kubrick.
1: Before we start with Kubrick, what can you say about Jewish representation in Hollywood and how has it evolved? Is it at a point that you think it's fair or what can you say about that?
0: Well, I, I'm interested in how we can map changing representations, how they reflect how Jewish people feel, and also um, stereotypes of Jewish people created both by Jewish people and non-Jewish people. I also hope that the model I provide isn't you know, specific just to Jews, that um, people from other groups can use it to study other groups. So for uh, ethnicities that can pass, like, for example, Irish-Americans or Italian-Americans. In, in a 2012 book I wrote called The New Jew on Film, what I argued was that since 1990, there's been a qualitative and quantitative change in the nature of um, representations of Jews on screen. By that, I mean, there's been more films and, and the way Jews are represented has been different. And this isn't just the US phenomenon, this is a global phenomenon. And that's also interesting is that, and, and in short, I would argue there's more confidence. So Jews aren't trying to, um, they're not, not assimilatory anymore. They're not trying to prove themselves or apologize. They're here, they've arrived and and, and the movies have a lot more confidence. You know, it's been interesting what's happened in the last, um, well, it's not interesting what's happened, it's bad what's happened in the last four to five years, especially under Donald Trump, and with the increase of anti-Semitism globally, but also violent attacks in the United States, then maybe, you know, I have to rethink what films will be like in the next few years as a result of that, but it's too early to say. But certainly watching film and TV from from this perspective, if anything, the perspective has got more critical, more, int- you know, in the past, Jewish people were afraid to air their dirty linen, as it were, their dirty laundry. But now that's, that's gone, even in, in, in the circumstances of the last five years, and particularly from Israel. So, so <laughs> I could talk about this all afternoon, but I'll, I'll, keep, it, I'll keep it there for sure. But it's a really interesting series on Netflix that I'm one episode from the end on uh, called Hit and Run, which dropped on Friday. And that provides a very dark, complex perspective on Jewish on Jewish violence.
1: So these more se-
0: subtle, complex representations than perhaps in the past.
1: Okay. Regarding what you say about the last four or five years, do you sense that change coming that's already brewing in how Jewish identify themselves in Hollywood?
0: Not yet, no. You know, I mean, the other thing we have to contend with and we have to hold our hands up to is the, uh, the sex scandals involving, you know, Harvey Weinstein and yeah. Jeffrey Epstein and now Ghislaine yeah. Maxwell's on trial. So... You know, and these things have been explored um in documentaries. So, you know, as has anti-Semitism so far, I haven't detected any kind of dialing back of, of this confidence or, you know, a suggestion that we have to hide now, which is perhaps what happened in the past. Keep your head down. And there's been a massive proliferation of content now, you know, just generally, you know, with the streaming services, and that includes Jewish content. So, I'm just throwing that in there because perhaps people would say in 2012, I was really celebratory because I didn't see what was happening between 2016 and 2021, not just in the United States, but Europe and other places as well. And I'm just throwing that in as a caution to the more celebratory note that I took. and Obviously all the revelations of the sex scandals as well. I wasn't aware of at the time when I wrote that book. So I'm just throwing those in as a cautionary notes to the sort of celebratory tone that I took in
1: book. So, If we're shifting to Kubrick now, then as a Jewish director and a Jewish prominent figure in Hollywood, how do you think that Kubrick contributed to an advance to Jewish representation or the Jewish image in Hollywood?
0: Well, um, one might say almost zero because, you know, Kubrick isn't identified as a Jewish director, nor do people identify him as a Jewish director because he didn't identify himself as a Jewish director. So although, you know. I would argue that actually if one delves beneath the surface, then he does contribute, just not in an obvious, explicit way. You know, if you pick up a book on American Jewish film directors, that Kubrick won't necessarily be mentioned in it, or he'll get a passing mention. So he hasn't contributed directly in the way that say, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, you know, uh, they have. But again, what I've tried to argue in my work is that, you know, people in a sense, write from what they know in, in his, directing he put in what he knew and what he knew in large part was the product of his Jewish cultural ethnic but not religious upbringing and this would be true of any director really you know Scorsese or, or, or others you know this isn't something that's unique to Jewish people I'm not trying to make that argument I'm not trying to what I'm trying to do is apply a model to what I know but yeah. what I hope is that people can take that model and apply it to to their groups
1: it's interesting because uh, yesterday, as part of my research, I was listening to an interview with you. I think it was a college interview. There was a, a female host that was yes. with you, and you specifically were focusing on more on The Shining, but I was surprised because you brought a lot of points that, like you said, are underneath the surface, so to speak, that let go a, a bit of that heritage in the film. Like, for example, simple things like the names of the characters, but other things about the psychology of the characters that actually when you think about it yeah this makes sense this connection makes sense so it's great i like that and it was a really really interesting interview give me one example in which we can see kubrick's heritage translated on screen
0: okay well i should argue again that i should point out sorry that i argue this is an interpretive approach yeah so kubrick's been interpreted from many perspectives primarily christian and people don't argue with that, that's that's considered okay. But yet suddenly when you apply a Jewish interpretation, or, or some people have argued that that's wrong. So what I'm trying to say is this isn't necessarily in- intended by Kubrick. Yeah, It's an interpretive approach. But having said that, what I do do is situate it in the historical cultural context to support my argument. So, you know, to say that I'm not just trying to pull this rabbit out of a hat. There is a, a background yeah. to, to his content. I don't know. I mean, the easiest thing is you could, pick a film off the top of your head and I will um uh, <laughs> you can, as it's your you know happy birthday for your birthday forthcoming as your present you can tell me which film you'd like me to start with <laughs> which is your favorite Kubrick film how's that
1: well we're going to talk later about our favorite yeah, But if you five. tell me yours I'll,
0: I'll give you an example
1: you know my favorite this is pretty obvious is 2001 before. okay
0: so uh, with 2001 you know there's lots of interesting Jewish elements behind the scenes in that movie more than I have found out since my 2018 book and an article I wrote subsequently um you know the use of Mahler or, or the Jewishness of Dan Richter for example uh, uh, but what I argued in my 2018 book is that in the 1960s this is uh, this is um there was a lot of um this is when mysticism really kind of begins to become popularized in the United States and eastern religions and as part of the counterculture and i tried to read the film in that mystical kind of fashion but through jewish mysticism so that lots of the symbols in the film intentionally or otherwise have jewish meaning so like the first section is for example the the a, a remaking of genesis there's there's four sections to the movie the number four is kind of significant in, in jewish exegesis as well so I went through it that way when we look at the final sequence in this he's in that room Bowman's in that room you know the smashing of the glass that's so very powerful symbols that we can be read uh, in this fashion and what's really interesting about 2001 is primarily most of this has been read from a Christian perspective that when Dave Bowman's reincarnated that you know this is the second coming of Christ although you know as far as I'm aware Christ isn't coming back as a baby he's coming back as a 30 something year old man. You know, so so I was trying to add to all this other, and even people like Arthur C. Clarke said it, and others, when, when you examine what, what they have to say. So that's one example of, of how this stuff can be interpreted from a Jewish perspective. As, as to whether Kubrick meant that, well, that's a very, that's a harder argument to make. It's very difficult to argue what Kubrick meant about anything, because he didn't want to tell you. He left you to make up your own mind.
1: Yeah, I read one interview where he said, I meant what I meant. That yes. was kind of his reply to whenever someone asked him, oh, what did you mean by this or what did you mean by that? He said, "What? I meant what I meant. And it led people to just make up their minds. Yeah. So uh, let's step back a bit. You said that your first Kubrick film was uh, Full Metal Jacket, right?
0: Um, yeah, that I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same, same with me.
1: Yeah. yeah. Is that when you started developing an interest in him and his films?
0: Possibly. I just remember I went with one of my best mates from school. I went to see Eyes Wide Chat in the cinema in 99. So I was definitely a fan by then as to what happened between, I have a terrible memory, what happened between 87 and 99. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> um, I mean, I know I, I, I went through university and, and was educated. So um, compared to 1987, I was still in high school. So that's probably what happened to get me interested in Kubrick.
1: And what would you say sets Kubrick apart from other directors? Why is he heralded, re as one of the best?
0: Yeah, no, interestingly, I mean, I'd say there's three reasons. One, there's a mythology around Kubrick um, that doesn't surround um, other directors in quite the same way. Second, I mean, there's two other reasons, I think. Kubrick's mature films, particularly from 2001 onwards, um, push the envelope technologically, right? He developed something, some process, he, or he did something difficult, you know, 2001, we know all about that and the reinvention of science fiction. And you just look at the use of sound and editing in A Clockwork Orange music, Barry Lyndon, the use of lights, Steadicam in The Shining, you know, recreating uh, Vietnam in London, Full Metal Jacket, and, and then in Eyes Wide Shut, that, that, that kind of the, the push process that he used, you know, where, where it gave a, a film a certain look. So all of his films kind of, he set the bar high for himself. He, he challenged himself with each new film and each new film was pretty much a new genre. He didn't just trot out something he'd already done. So that's one reason. And the second reason is his films have depth. They're intellectual. They give you know we we'd be discussing them for years afterwards. We're still discussing what two thousand and one means. And that reflects the the level of research and preparation that he put into his movies, and also the reading he did. And just to go back to refer to something that you asked me earlier, one of the ways that I tried to argue that you know, not say that this is what Kubrick meant is I, you know, I've been to his archive a lot. I've read what he's read. I've looked at the notes in what he's read. I've looked at what he's highlighted or underlined in things. It gives you a kind of sense of, you know, what he was thinking about. For example, I've been looking at Aryan papers and I've been looking at what he underlined in the different reviews in Aryan papers. And, you know, that doesn't tell you how Aryan papers would have looked, but it does give you a sense of what did interest him in the story um, Ovarian papers, in the reviews of the book, should I say, not nice film, obviously. So all that research, you know, like with The Shining, you listen to that that lecture, uh, that discussion, and, you know, he read The Uncanny, and he read um, Gothic literature, and he worked with a professor of Gothic literature, and a writer, and, you know, all these, Bruno Bettelheim, so, you know, not many horror directors, I mean, even Rosemary's Baby, which is one of my favourite, I don't think Polanski did that kind of level of research, um, nor did Freakin necessarily for The Exorcist, which is another classic. But yet when Kubrick makes his horror film, you know, 12 years after Rosemary's Baby, that's coming at the end of that cycle of new horror, it's very intellectual. I mean, you can't just watch it as a crack-in horror film, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and We all did when we were like, whatever age, 15, 16. And, you know, you rewatch and rewatch, you know, I rewatch it now as a father. I have a completely different interpretation. You know, there's not many movies where you can do that. You, know, you can rewatch Spielberg films over and over again and just admire the t- sort of technical virtuosity of it. But you're not there thinking, oh, you know, that's a different thought. I, yeah. If you see what I mean, like I've, yeah. you know, I'm going to be writing about Jurassic Park this year because it's the anniversary coming up um, for a collection. And, you know, I'll, I'll in- interpret that film differently because, you know, I've, I've got a different way of viewing it. But I don't think the film from when I first watched it, you're just you're going, oh, huh, that's an idea I hadn't thought of before. You know, but with the shining, you know, and what's really interesting with the sh- with all these films is every generation has their a slightly different interpretation. So when you teach this, you know, and there's a significant gap between me, is that the students will see it differently given what's going on in their lives, right? And and, and their generation. And I think that's what sets Kubrick apart. And and there's a huge mythology, which I'm in <laughs> yeah, I'm in part responsible for helping to maintain because you know, we're singling this guy out as being unique and different. Yeah. You know, what would be interesting in the future is, and I know some scholars are working towards it. Is those who are going to be saying, no, well, he isn't. One of the things,
1: a film like The Shining, it's still regarded as one of the best horror films ever. Yeah. And one of the things that I also think that sets Kubrick apart, to what you said about how he tried not to repeat himself as far as genres go, some people have said, you know, he made the best sci-fi, the best comedy, the best horror film uh, one of the best war films or maybe the best war films. And I think that has something to say about uh, obviously his skills and, and what he brought to the table as a director.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly I think 2001 um, is probably considered the best science fiction and The Shining's up there is one of the best horrors, but maybe not the best. I don't think it's important whether he, pars of Glory was the best war film and Doctor Strangelove was the funniest nuclear comedy. You know, I think what's important is the consistent level of, of quality
1: yeah
0: you know uh, uh both uh, like i said technologically and intellectually so yeah we can stick him on the afi top lists go through those and see where kubrick figures and probably produce an aggregate score and then maybe compare him to who are you know Wilson wells or or martin scorsese or someone but i don't think i think what's important is the consistent level of quality and uh, movies that are spoken about again though it's very interesting i mean i think someone should study this is whether like you know, who his audiences are, who they appeal to, whether it's a certain type of person, you know, men, uh, for example, <laughs> uh, Western. You know, I don't know. I mean, someone should do this. How does he compare? You know, I'm I'm, I'm part of an industry that, that is singling him out because that's who we study. But, you know, are we also not then guilty of suggesting he's something that maybe he wasn't? I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just throwing that spanner yeah, in the yeah. works as you were. Know.
1: But also that level of research that he applied, like you mentioned, is always noted to the films that he ended up making, to also the films that he never made. The amount of research that he applied to that is impressive. If you could bring Kubrick back to direct one of his unfinished projects, which one would you choose? I have three, it, Yeah, three. Um,
0: I'd be intrigued um, to know which three. Well, given I uh, the discovery of the Burning Secret screenplay, that that would have been interesting. But I suppose for me the obvious one would be Aryan Papers. You know, how would he have dealt with explicit Jewishness in a career where he spent a career dodging it? I think um, that would have been really interesting. I mean, I suppose the the other great unmade them um, is how he would have made AI. um yeah, and, and Napoleon. I'm uh, less interested in Napoleon and, and AI, and in a sense he kind of did make AI because I don't think he was ever going to direct it. I think he got to the point where he realized he couldn't do it. So have I covered the three you were thinking of there?
1: Yeah, yeah, those were the three I I had in mind. (laughs) One of Kubrick's usual themes is that of dehumanization, whether it is by crime, war, madness, technology, or just regular family routine. Do you agree that that theme is present in his films? How people
0: are dehumanized by... Yeah, I mean... (sighs) Yes and no. I mean, um, I think one can certainly see that in his movies. um, But at the same time, I think his movies are are very human. (laughs) You know, he's not the cold misanthropic director, people say. (laughs) So I think you can see dehumanization, but consequently, you can see humanization. Yeah. Yeah. I think for every example where someone will point to it, we can point to a counterexample. So I do agree, but I also disagree. You know? Okay.
1: (laughs) I, I I understand. One of the things that Kubrick never did, he never wrote an original script, as far as I can remember. I think all of his films are adaptations. And mm. I've read some people that say that that keeps him from being a full master, so to speak, that oh, he should have done an original script. What do you think about that?
0: Um, well, it's not entirely true that he never wrote an original script. He just never shot uh, one of his own original okay. scripts. Yeah. So <laughs> your fear and desire was generated together with Howard as was Killer's Kiss, so any from yeah. The Killing Onwards. And he adapted on his own, Erin Papers, Clockwork Orange, Napoleon, and um, Barry Lyndon. And he did write a lot of original screenplays, partial and complete. He just never made them. You know, I suppose it's what your definition of an auteur is. You know, there's only Wood and Alien alley- an auteur because he kind of pretty much does everything you know, at what point do we draw the line? You know, Scorsese doesn't edit his own movies. Does that mean he's not an auteur, whereas Kubrick does edit his own movies? Yeah. So, you know, I don't think, I think where I would say is that Kubrick wasn't a writer, right? By his own admission, he wasn't a writer. But you don't need to be a writer to be a great director. Yeah, I agree. I mean, mean, take some of the classics like Casablanca, you know, and people say Michael Curtiz is an auteur. You know, he barely, all he did was turn the camera on and off, right? (laughs) But that doesn't detract from calling him an auteur and the genius of that movie and he didn't okay. write a bit of it as far as i know
1: I, I agree i agree to the point that he has such a distinctive style and such a uh, control over all his projects i mean i i wouldn't argue about his, his skills or, or or how great he is
0: yeah i mean again it's interesting it's like what we say in britain swings and roundabouts so you know, there might be an area where one director takes control for that, that Kubrick doesn't, but then Kubrick takes control of areas that those directors don't, you know, post-production areas from editing, marketing, publicity, dubbing, others probably leave to others. And he's, he's on it there. You know, yeah, he's really, you know, I I think, I I think that the issue is, is with the auteur theory, not whether Kubrick's an auteur or not. Uh, And and some people don't want to put directors names after films because they recognize their collaborative processes. Okay, so, but that—that that I think is a different argument.
1: Yeah, no, I—I I understand. Before we start discussing our favorite Kubrick films, how about we play a game? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's play a game of Kubrick trivia. I have several questions about Kubrick, and let's see okay. how much how much you know about him and how well you know his films. Okay. All
0: right, my yep. We have a show in Britain called Mastermind, and you have a chosen subject and probably Kubrick would be mine.
1: <laughs> well, let's see. Let's start with a with an easy one. What is the code word that Tom Cruise needed to enter the mansion in Ice White Shot*? Uh, Fidelia. Good. We start with one. Uh, let's go with... It is rumored that Kubrick had a fear and mistrust of... A. Flying. B. Doctors. C. Medicine. D. All of the above.
0: I'd go D. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all of the above i, I and, heard and you that... know what you should
0: add in there hollywood <laughs>
1: <laughs> los yeah, angeles that that's why he moved to london <laughs> he yeah. said no i, I don't want to be there <laughs> so it's it's a rumor but as far as i read the thing all flying came after i think it was an accident from a friend of him something yeah like a friend
0: that. died in a in a plane crash i mean so he had a pilot's license and yeah. he flew a lot and he monitored air traffic control you know, he monitored the broadcast, <laughs> but um, a friend died and they sent him his stuff. Um, he doesn't know why. Well, this is what Christian says. And that, I think, he decided he took a flight. The last time he took a flight was to Spain to shoot the battle sequence for Spartacus. So, what, 59? I can't remember if he took the flight back home. That was the last flight he took. Wow. So, summer 59. He said after that, it was always, from what I can tell, I have seen references to him taking a flight, whether he did or not. But I I mainly went by boat. Wow. And train. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so let's go with another one. What is the year in the July 4th ball picture shown at the end of The Shining?
0: 1921
1: Oh yeah great doing good you're doing good you know you, you know your're man <laughs> uh, let's go another another one a Hungarian composer Georgi Ligeti worked with Kubrick on several occasions in how many films did they collaborate
0: uh, well they never collaborated Kubrick just used his mu- music so he used it in <laughs> 2001 yeah he used it in the shining and he used it in Ice wide shots
1: exactly. Let's go with another one. Uh, Arlie Ermy, who was a former drill instructor, was originally hired as a consultant, while Tim, called Sherry, was supposed to play Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. As part of his work as a consultant, Ermy recorded a demonstration where he would yell insults and abuse without flinching or repeating himself while being pelted with tennis balls and oranges. For how long did he do this?
0: What, hours? Mm, I, no. I know that they um, wrote down like hundreds of pages of dialogue based on that i didn't i haven't
1: read uh <laughs> i missed this one of uh, how f- long 15 minutes the video was 15 minutes the video that he prepared apparently to show tim okay. what he needed to do and Kurig was so impressed they don't know i'm gonna hire you that's one of my favorite bits of trivia about that film. okay
0: that, that's an obscure one <laughs> <laughs>
1: the climatic fight in killer's kiss takes place where
0: Uh, in a mannequin factory yeah
1: got it you got it i got you with one but i don't think i can get you another one (laughs) during his early years kubrick paired himself in a co-production deal with what actor
0: in his early years kubrick uh say that again
1: Kubrick paired himself in a co-production deal, or partner himself. Oh, no, Kirk,
0: Kirk, Douglas. Kirk
1: Douglas. Kirk Douglas, yeah. They ended up making two films. They were supposed to make three films, I think, but they just ended up making two.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Peter Sellers was originally hired to play how many characters in Doctor Strange Love? Four. What was the fourth one?
0: The uh, one that Major he didn't... King Kong.
1: Major yes. King Kong.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> What two directors Kubrick often mentioned as inspiration to his work? A, Offels and Eisenstein. B, Morneau and DeMille. C, Ford and Lange. A. Yeah, Offels and Eisenstein. Great. Actually, I, I was watching, I hadn't seen his short films. And as I was researching last night, I said, I'm going to check them out because I've seen all his films, but his short films. And I saw the first two, um, Day of the Fight and Flying Padre. And I was surprised because I think it was in Flying Padre. You could see some shots that seem very, very similar to, for example, uh, Barachip Potemkin. The close-ups, the face of a kid or some people were very reminiscent of Eisenstein. And the last one. What is the song that Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, sings during the infamous rape scene in A Clockwork
0: Orange? Uh, Singing in the Rain. Yes.
1: Yes, you got it. You did pretty good. You know you mean.
0: <laughs> one wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I know it was a, uh, an obscure one and a tough one. Yeah. So let's talk about our Kubrick loot, so to speak. Our respective top five films from Kubrick. I'm pretty sure there's going to be an overlap, so it doesn't matter. Let's just uh, shoot them all and talk about them. Let's start with your number
0: five. Oh, I, I, I can't do them in order.
1: <laughs> so yeah. shoot anyone.
0: Um, 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 okay, um, well, let's go with um, Lolita.
1: Okay, what can you say about Lolita?
0: I, it's, it's Peter Sellers. For you know, Again, I'm, I suppose I've got to make a distinction about films that I like it's just as to watch, but films from the perspective I've taken. I think there's a lot of um, Kubrick in Lolita. Um, I mean you can literally see him in the movie in that in transition shot um, as he tries to walk out the room. But I think in the way that he developed the character of Quilty along with Peter Sellers, you know, I, I wrote a piece and I called it Kubrick's Double. And I think there's a lot of Kubrick in Peter Sellers' character. So you know, I do I do like that sense of it all and all the you know, the novel's very quippy, very punny, lots of wordplay. And it's Kubrick's first kind of independent movie, post Spartacus as a big name director. And God, James Mason's voice I, I suppose one has to then say that you know I'm not endorsing the dodgy sexual politics at all but yeah from a, from a Kubrick perspective I'd put that in there yeah
1: yeah it's a great film no denying that so my number 5 number 5 is always the toughest because you know my, my top 3 top 4 is pretty much clear but when you get to number 5 they all start to bunch up and I could have any of 4 films here in number 5 and I wouldn't mind I originally had a Clockwork Orange, but after rewatching watching Dr. Strangelove last night, and I'm going to switch to that one. It's so pointedly funny, so sharp in its critique, uh, without losing the focus of what it is. Uh, Peter Sellers is excellent in, in all his roles, but to me, George C. Scott <laughs> steals every moment, every moment he's yep. in, which is made more hilarious when you know the circumstances behind that performance and how Kubrick uh, basically tricked him into acting like that. But I really love the way that Kubrick, on a makes fun of our situation as a society or overall humanity and with this he doesn't pull any punches i love it so what's your number four or your next one
0: um i probably put full metal jacket in there especially that first half you know you know that first half is fantastic You said it earlier in the question I didn't get, you know. And also, I think having studied it now in more detail, he, he took a genre which most people associate with jungles and he stuck it in a city which he recreated in London. And, you know, you just forget when you watch that film, you're not in Hue. You know, this was a cold, freezing London, not far from where I'm from. And you forget that completely. So so yeah, I, w- I would put that in probably as four.
1: I was reading that he even brought like, I don't know, 100 or 200 palm trees to London to stage the, the scenes. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's
0: impressive. So I'm nodding. Um, and this is a podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, so my fourth one would be Paths of Glory. This is one I saw for the first time a couple of years ago, but it just blew me away. First, on the string of Kubrick's skills and technique, I mean, for it to be his fourth film after what are essentially three small-scale films, he surely directed the hell out of this. The continued shots inside the trenches, the soldiers advance towards the enemy. These are all examples of how he neatly directs this. But then he pairs it with a commanding performance from Kirk Douglas and a powerful message that is not only against war, but also against class and privilege of the higher rank Officers, and it's just great.
0: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I...
1: <laughs> You're nodding again. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm nodding. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, l- let me know your third one.
0: Uh, my third, I think, well, then, would be The Shining. You know, I am a fan of horror, um, like War, and you know, this is a movie in which barely anyone dies. You know, uh, but with tremendous psychological depth and open to endless interpretation as to what's actually going on in that film. And the more I've studied, the more I've learned. I think there's a, it's also, again, very heavily autobiographical. And there's a lot of Kubrick in it. I like the autobiographical movies. Probably his most autobiographical movie is Fear and Desire, because in the sense that he put a lot of himself in *Scream* before he learned to so kind of misdirect. But yeah, I think The Shining, you know, and extremely well shot as well, that use of steady cam and the yeah. use of music, and the eeriness, and, and, and the fact that not a lot happens, but it's still scary.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a film that I've always liked, but I'm not as enamored with it as most people. But every time I rewatch it, because I've seen it a couple of times, uh, several times, every time I watch it, it improves. It improves with me, and it has come up a couple of notches on my ranking since I first saw it back in, I don't know, in the 90s. I had the chance to see it in theaters in 2018. I think it was the 40th anniversary before Dr. Sleep came out and it was great. It looked great in theaters, and like I said, every time I read, actually the interview with you that I listened to yesterday also shed new lights on some things I had never thought about or hadn't seen from certain perspectives, and I love it. It's not on my top five, but I really love it. It's a great film. So my number three is Eyes Wide Shut. This is one I've seen several times. I remember all the hoopla back when it was released, about Tom and Nicole being cast, how it was marketed as a erotic thriller, the fact that it was Kubrick's last film, the orgy scene, every news outlet was speaking about that scene it was crazy but when i first saw it i was surprised to see that more than a stereotypical 90s sexy thriller it was a really thought-provoking examination of marriage trust and routine i've gone back to it a couple of times since and every time i like it more and more i think it's extremely clever and subversive in all its parts i I really love it
0: yeah i agree because it's my number two (laughs) that's okay (laughs) go ahead what can you add about it um, yeah, well, it's the film I saw in the cinema as an adult. I remember when he said Fidelio, you know, that the, the hairs sort of started to rise on the back of my neck with this. That's a line from the movie. Uh, but you know that the way he cast you in an alternate world in in that sequence with what sounded like slightly kind of expressionistic sound, you know, I've written a whole book on it. So, you know, I'd see the preparation and, and, and that went into it. And again, it's heavily autobiographical. He poured a lot of himself into it, both explicitly and, and um, through lots of references, but kind of inexplicitly. It's a book that he read in the 50s, probably under the influence of um, either someone at City College, New York, where he studied, or his father's library, or his then girlfriend, who was to be his second wife, Ruth Sabatkas, either under the influence of one or, or two or all three of those people. I think he read that book in the 50s, from, from what we argue and that wanted to adapt it. So I spent five decades attempting to. And in a sense, one can see elements of that book and all his work afterwards in some way or another, really. Um, some more than the other. So um, Trau novella, the Schnitzer novella, when I say that book. So, yeah. Um, and it's a film that really encapsulates a lot of his interests. And the other thing that someone pointed out when we are working on the book is Kubrick spent his career putting big things on the big screen, right? War of Glory, Dr. Strangelove, Space, 2001, which I suspect is going to be your number one. Um, uh, but I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> and um, But then here, like you said, just now, he puts tiny intimate things on the big screen. Marriage, <laughs> routine, yeah. intimate moments, right? He's, so he's putting intimacy on the big screen. How do you do that? That's probably why he struggled with it for so long. And also produced a moment, a movie with its, you know, I think much underrated, uh, Cuba, um, Cruise's performance, like Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon. yeah, and um, you know, comedy moments as well.
1: Yeah, that that's one thing that. I'm gonna steer away a bit because it's something that one of my mutuals on Twitter and one of my listeners mentioned and he said uh, the guy is named Leonard at Monsieur Marlowe that's his Twitter handle and he said I think Kubrick's current reputation as this serious canonical director kind of ignores the fact that his movies are supremely entertaining even something as supposedly dry as Barry Lyndon still manages to be effing hilarious and I agree I told him that I told him you know I agree most most of his films, even something as, and I'm going to use a description that I don't agree, but something as inert as 2001 has some funny moments. I always laugh when the guy is reading the non-gravity yes. toilet, because that's one dry joke stuck in there in the middle of this intellectual, cerebral yeah. sci-fi film that will make you laugh. And I think that's present in all of his films. All of his films has this dry humor in Barry Lindon as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I think all of his films have humor in them. Yeah.
1: Another one of my listeners, Ketum, uh, K. Maliki Sanchez, he replied to Leonard. And he says, the wry right wit that is omnipresent in Kubrick's film is up so close and yet an impassive witness, allowing the oddities to unfold from full metal jacket, clockwork orange, endless fonts of original and delightful portals to places we dare not go but must look. I remember reading that Malcolm McDowell referred to Kubrick's humor being black as coal. So my second one is uh, Full Metal Jacket. You already mentioned it. And this was probably my first Kubrick film as well. I remember it being on TV often when I was a kid or a teen. I think I saw it a bunch of times, even if it was by Chunks. But I have kept going back to it every now and then, and it's probably my favorite war film, maybe. I love the way Kubrick Chronicles, the the dehumanization of these men, starting with their arrival at basic training, having their heads shaved, that's the opening shot, as we see them stripped of their individuality and and become these war machines, all through war and culminating with death and destruction at their hands, all while they're singing Mickey Mouse songs. So it's excellent, great performances all around, especially Vincent D'Onofrio and Hermie, which we already mentioned in that first half. Not enough can be said about those two but i think matthew modin holds his own as this passive observer passive observer that becomes not so passive by the end Uh, but that's the point of the film he seems to be unwillingly sucked into this mayhem that he doesn't want to be in
0: i love it i think it's a great film and i think it's an example of where you asked me earlier about dehumanization where matthew you know joker's dehumanized and then rehumanized by the end of the movie with that long close-up on his face as he's um about to shoot the sniper and then kind of reverting back to a pre-Vietnam idyll of his childhood you know Mickey Mouse unspoiled by anything that happened since so for all the dehumanization once he's rehumanization same with Barry Lyndon you know um, when his son dies and he loses his leg in the duel you know it's hard to watch that movie and just say that's a dry movie yeah, I think if you say that's a dry movie, you're a not a parent, and B, you didn't watch it on the big screen with the full range of emotion written across Barry Lyndon's face.
1: Yeah, uh, that's another great one, really. I rewatched it earlier this year, I think, and I, I remember liking it. But when I rewatched it earlier this year, I mean, this is a great, great film. I mean all his films are i really wouldn't talk bad about any of his films the only one and i give it a pass is fear and desire which is obviously his first it's the weakest if i were to mention a weakest of his films but they're all great i really love them that's why he's my favorite director Mm. so uh, let's finish with your number one
0: um well i I, you know this is more as a fan dr strangelove i just you know like you said it earlier the humor and george c scott just the looks on his face and and, you know the. Comedy in there, and I think there's also just genius moments. You know, the allowing Peter Sellers to riff. You know, on the telephone conversation with the Russian Premier, it's you forget watching that film. There isn't anyone on the other end of the line, right? So, you know, I just think smart, clever movie. There's a lot of depth to that film intellectually, um, especially with what was going on in in the states when he made it, and with what he was reading and what he put into it. And then, um, you know, as Probably one of the first countercultural movies to really have a go at the United States, and when you think of the Cold War orthodoxies up to that point, so all round, I think you know it's one of those films where you stick it on and you just you know there's that certain genre movie like The Big Lebowski or Pulp Fiction where you just stick it on and you start to watch. Not so much for what's happening because you know what's happening, you've you've seen it a million times, but the the lines are so good, you know the zingers. And, you're, you're, you know, that conversation in Pulp Fiction between Jules and Vince, you know, any of the conversations, Big Lebowski, any of the interactions, the cushions behind me uh, on my couch, uh, uh, Big Lebowski cushions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, A good fan. Has that, that punchy dialogue, you know. So, yeah. so I think just as, yeah, I, I usually stick that as number one, my favourite. I'm not saying it's his best, but it's my favourite.
1: No, I, I agree. I agree. And like I said, when I put it up, when I rewatched it last night, I was laughing here because I agree. I mean, it's so funny. And the way that those actors deliver those lines. I mean, best comedies, you have actors delivering these lines with a serious face and with a straight face. And that's what makes it all more funny. My number one, I already mentioned it, but it's 2001, Space Odyssey. Arguably the best sci-fi ever made and just plain one of the best films ever made. What Kubrick does with this film, taking control of your senses visually, audibly, the way he uses sound and music and harmoniously combines it with great visuals, Perfect shot composition, direction is just masterful, but also to pair it with a story that's engaging and intriguing. I, I saw this for the first time when I was probably 19, 20 years old. And I guess I should consider myself lucky because I, I never found it boring. I don't know, most people say, oh, I found it boring the first time and then I caught its drift, but I, I never found it boring. I've seen it around four or five times since. And it's the kind of film that every time I go back to it, uh, I walk with something new, something different. And it's a film that despite being made 50 years ago, 50 years ago, I think, it doesn't feel dated at all. It's a film that you can see, you can watch now. and I mean, compare it with 2010, which came in 1982, I think. And you look at that film and it feels dated. It feels like an 80s film and you watch... 2001, and it doesn't feel like it aged. It always, it always feels fresh and innovative, and I don't think anything has matched it in terms of skill, scope, and ambition. It's a great film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I You know, if we're going to talk about his best versus what our favorites are, you know, it's a technical accomplishment at a time when he had to pretty much invent it from scratch. Yeah, they use stop motion and whatnot, well, sort of, in, in it, but, you know, there was... Actually, I don't know if you did. I've got to think about that. I'm not sure if he did. But, you know, they had to invent so many processes for that movie. I think, you know, we had a 50th anniversary event to, to celebrate the movie in 2018. And one of the points I made back then is we're still debating what that film is <laughs> and what it means. And there's not many films that sustain that level of debate. You know, we, we watch it and think whether we, it leaves us cold or not. You can admire the technical mastery that's influenced just about every other film since in a way that um, The Shining has influenced just about every other horror film since. But, you know, the level of debate about, you know, what's going on in that room, you know, what does it mean? What's the movie about? And, And on our day, we had experts from different disciplines discuss whether he got stuff right, you know, from an evolutionary biology perspective, he got it right. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, obviously, apple wanted to make an ipad based on what they saw in the movie so he <laughs> got that right because they were trying to make <laughs> that um you know computing power somewhat you know etc etc you know and there's loads in that movie so i can't disagree with that it's probably most people's number one kubrick film uh you know and even caught my is probably my least favorite you know again what he did in the period that he did it was revolutionary yeah he made a violent movie when i other people were making violent movies, but he made it as a musical, <laughs> and that as pretty much like the first half of Full Metal Jacket, and that was you know in an era of musicals, you know West Side Story is the closest you got to a violent musical, and nothing like, like Clockwork Orange. What he did with the editing there, and so on and so on. So, you know, it, it is tough when people go, "What's your you know my top 5 Aren't necessarily the best five.
1: Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. What, actually... what
0: speaks to well, which five speak to me? You know, Barry Lyndon would would be there uh, number six. Probably, you know, again, I admire bits of Spartacus, you know, especially, you know, the battles and the gladiator training.
1: Spartacus is one, I think it's the one I've seen the least or I haven't seen it in, I think, in 20 years. And I wanted to rewatch it before today, but I just couldn't get to it because I remember liking it. But as I saw more of his films, it kind of like kept falling back to the bottom of the pile, so to speak. But I I want to rewatch it. So I went and asked on Twitter for people to share their favorite quirk films or any thoughts on the director. And here's what I got. So I want to share with you so you can chime in and share your thoughts as well. My friend Keram at K. Maliki Sanchez, he said, Shining remains is one of the scariest films I have ever seen. The Terror of Latin Spaces. Eyes Wide Shut is a bizarre and unforgettable film. London for New York. The Crazy Score by Justin Puck combined with Georgie Ligeti And Sidney Pollock's disarming naturalistic performance. Sith Ewok at Decentralized P6, he said, Barry Lyndon, 100%. Ken at InterKen, he said, this is a toffee. I'm going to go with 2001 since it's a collaboration between one of our all-time great directors and one of our all-time great hard science fiction authors. At times, it feels like a documentary about everyday life from the future. And my friend Brian Scuttle at Scuttle Lemur said 2001 A Space Odyssey, this film hit hard with this combination of ideas, images, and music so much that I wrote my own soundtrack to the film. And he shared uh, uh, some songs that he recorded. I haven't gotten to it, Brian, so when I get to him, I will share my thoughts. Nostalgia Cass at D. W. Lumber said, A Space Odyssey, my working definition of science fiction film, a movie about ideas presented with awe-inspiring imagery and less reliant on plot than questioning our place within the cosmos. And Eric Hansen, at Eric of Arkham, agreed with him and said top-tier Kubrick, I usually live and die by character-driven stories, which 2001 most assuredly is not. Still, there's something about 2001 that's so mysterious and majestic that it doesn't matter. A rare case where the idea alone is enough. And the last one, Alex, at Art by Alex J is "A Clockwork Orange, of course. The story, cinematography, soundtrack, and Malcolm McDowell's performance were so powerful that here you have a character and his droogies be absolute shits to everybody they come across, but you just can't stop watching. The movie is a masterclass in filmmaking. So, what do you think about their choices?
0: Yeah, I mean, one can anticipate. Um, you know, I tend to find that, that, by and large, most people's favorite movies fall into the 2001 onwards, colour movies, with the exception of maybe Eyes Wide Shut. That that when I teach a Kubrick class um, every other year, you know, if the students have seen a a movie, it would have been Full Metal Jacket, The Shining, Clockwork Orange, maybe 2001. So, what is interesting though, um, that less is known about the kind of black and white phase, and a lot of people just haven't seen them. And I think it's important to to watch those black and white movies to see his development yeah um and and, you know fear and desire he makes mistakes rookie mistakes killer's kiss again he wasn't so pleased with killer's kiss but but then you know he meets james b harris works on the killing which is a cracking heist movie great film. you know david mamet no less says this is the one this is the best of the one last heist genre has gone on to influence you know reservoir dogs pulp fiction etc mm-hmm and then you go through to Pars of Glory, which has got the, you know, the tracking shots, but the the dancing, you know, he sets scenes to dance, whether they're actually dancing or not. Um, Kubrick always stuck a dance sequence in his films because he loved dancing. I've just learned. And then, you know, obviously he then goes on to make Spartacus. Whatever one thinks of Spartacus, it's the movie that made him a big name. So he learned a lot on that set. And then, and then, you know, you've got Lolita and Strangelove already mentioned as as his first independent movies and then the first movie really on his own since fear and desire is 2001 because james b harris is left by that point although you know he makes most of strange love without harris and that's why probably why it doubles the time to make it but yeah i mean you know i'm not gonna argue with people's choices and, and the reasons that they gave and they're all good sound reasons all i do is i urge listeners to go check out those early movies if they really are a fan of kubrick go look at how he developed them yeah them look for the themes and then the stylistic stuff. And then when, if you watch Eyes Wide Shut, you can see then if you go through them all in order, you know, and his photography, you can see how he's referred back to them all in one way or another. So that's another reason why I like Eyes Wide Shut. It's a kind of summation of his career. Like I think it's almost like he knew that was going to be his last movie as a director possibly. And he, he poured a lot of himself into it physically. He operated the camera, which he hadn't been doing since I think the shining because physically demanding. You know he was older and obviously got bigger as you got older, as we know, and he didn't have the best eating habits, you know. So, physically, he poured a lot of himself, and but, but I think emotionally, intellectually, and just uh, he poured a lot of himself. And then you can see a lot of his movies in there. That would be a good nerdy kind of question session is <laughs> the different references you can spot in there. And the more people know, the more they'll find them, uh, yeah. I uh, agree, in the movie. so yeah.
1: I read he was working 15, 18 hours during the filming of Eyes Were Shut.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it typically would because if you think Kubrick kind of got up late and then did his, and then he went to set, and then he would work on the set, and maybe shooting would finish two, three in the morning, and um, you know he started around one, twelve, one o'clock. You know, he might have a chat afterwards. Yeah. So, and editing, yeah, you know, the editing diaries show that the Nigel Gold and his assistants were working all kinds of hours to get that ready. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the quotes that we put in our book is almost like he killed himself on that movie. Yeah. But not so, just physically, I think it was the, emotion, the no, emotional yeah, effort. Yeah. yeah, I got it.
1: So that's it. That's it for the Kubrick Loot. Nathan, what are you currently working on?
0: Oh, well, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, <laughs> I'll give you some. so. So um, recently just uh, published the Bloomsbury Companion to Stanley Kubrick, which... Hopefully, it'll be a bit cheaper in paperback, but it's probably the definitive current collection that explores Kubrick thematically. So we don't look at his films. We don't let people just write about what they want about. We look at a series of film, you know, themes. I write about childhood and psychoanalysis, and there's all kinds of stuff in there. But I've edited the following books, one on the new wave and Hollywood, um, one on Alien, because it's 40 years of Alien, one looking at Kubrick's Middle Europa, working on now, one on Eyes Wide Shut. And I'm probably missing one. Um, But those those are the books um, of editors or in editing. Um, But the big project for your listeners is I'm working on a Kubrick biography with Robert Kolker. And we're hoping this will be the definitive biography um, to date, um, taking into account everything that's been written about him and the archival material and original interviews, um, which will um, hopefully be out in 2023. Um, with Faber & Faber in the UK and um, hopefully a separate US publisher. So watch this space. I've learned a lot working on this. I've been working on Kubrick, teaching him since 2007 and intensively researching him since 2012. But really in this first six months of this year, eight months, I've learned stuff that kind of has changed my view. So hopefully we'll, we'll produce a more rounded book on Kubrick than has been produced to date thus far with you know warts and all hope. you know know, not salacious but you know what he got right what he got wrong you know it wasn't just an easy uphill yeah you know downhill it was there were bumps and snags along the way this wasn't a director who thought he had it easy you know and i i can do whatever i want i've learned uh, he made mistakes and he didn't always get it right
1: look forward to those works how can anybody get in touch with you on the internet if they wanted to
0: Um, Well, I'm on Twitter at at NDAbrams. You can find me on Facebook that way. Also, just Google my name and Bangor University. My email will come up. Do get in touch. Be interested to hear your thoughts. And, um, you know, some of my best research discoveries came through social media. So, (laughs) um, you know, I I, I don't knock it. I mean, one can also get into fights on there, but, you know, one can also discover a lot. And certainly it was social media that, that led me to find burning secret and the screenplay that he worked on in 56 and had been lost ever since
1: so it's been an honor to talk with you i wish you the best in your career and hopefully we'll do this again someday
0: yeah no great there's other directors i like in other movies so uh...
1: <laughs> we can exchange then ideas and see where we can do it again okay okay all right
0: thank, thank you very birthday. much <laughs> and, uh...
1: <laughs> thank you thank you all right take care <laughs> it was a pleasure bye uh,
0: bye
1: that was it for a current loot but before I wrap it up, I want to share another reply I got from one of my listeners that got in right after we finished recording. My friend Phil Sagan at Phil underscore Sagan said 2001, my favorite film of all time. A Clockwork Orange, my seventh favorite film of all time. Dr. Strangelove, my 10th favorite film of all time. Full Metal Jacket, my 24th favorite film of all time. And The Shining, my second favorite horror film. Kubrick is the goat to me. So thanks, Phil, for sharing your thoughts. Now, that was it for our Cougar Lute. Once again, I want to thank Nathan for accepting the invitation and for a great and insightful conversation. If you enjoyed it, make sure you check out his books and follow him on social media. You can find links to his stuff in the episode description. And remember, you can check out the podcast in all the main podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many others. As for me, you know you can find me on Twitter at TiffCGT and the podcast at TMML2021. We're also on Instagram as TiffCGT and I'm on Letterboxd as Tiff12. Remember to follow us and share the link so more people can join us in the loot. Have a great day, everybody, and keep looting! <laughs> miles roger three miles target in sight where in hell is major kong made you